Heard joke once. Man goes to doctor. Says he's depressed. Says life seems harsh and cruel. Says he's lost his smile in a threatening world where what lies ahead is vague and uncertain. Doctor says, treatment is simple. Great wrestler, Shawn Michaels is in town tonight. Go see him. Man burst into tears. Says, but doctor, I am Shawn Michaels. I, I still don't know why the voice is necessary. I'm still, that's, <laughs> like, you could have just told that joke like you tell the clown joke. And I just, I don't. I don't. I don't get why you had to add the voice on that. You could have just told the joke. <laughs> as it's from as, the Watchmen. Oh, oh your Rorschach. Okay. Yeah, your Rorschach. But still, that. Okay. But yeah, but Rorschach's just repeating a joke that's been told many times. Like it, that joke is unexclusive to the Watchmen. That joke's been told for years. <laughs> I, yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Let's break down this joke for fifteen minutes. <laughs> yeah, like, like I get. Okay, I get why you did the voice. Why you thought it was the voice, but that was just distracting. You could have just told the joke. Whatever. What the fuck do take I know? Take two. Take two. Cold open. Go, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's just. Welcome to Ten Bell Pod, a Ten Bell Salute themed podcast. Is that even a good idea? I'm Nick, and I'm not a nugget. Joined as always by Micah J. Loving. Hey, everybody. How's it going? I hope everybody's doing good in quarantine. I finally learned to not deep dive research the Iraq War, and that has improved my mood significantly. Um. <laughs> I'm really I'm looking forward to this episode a whole lot, but I'm also looking forward to afterwards because I didn't watch the UFC card last night, and I've actually been kind of eating good and working out. So after we record this, I'm gonna watch the UFC pay per view prelims them all and eat some fucking pizza. And I just gotta say I'm looking forward to it so much. So I'm predicting that uh, Overeem will get knocked out by Walt Harris by the time you listen to this episode. So that's all I got. All right, and we're also joined by a man who shot a tent down in Reno just to watch it die, the man Scott Jake Maddock. God damn, once again, just crushing it again. I, I There was no rhyming to that one. There was no puns there, <laughs> but like that one made me feel good inside. Like that just, I... <laughs> I, I need to come up with some new merch because these live high, high Spots auctions are doing wonders for me. I made a weekend's worth of merch sales in 10 minutes. Oh, wow, yes. it was that good? I didn't get to watch it. It was for me. I highly recommend anybody who is a fan of our podcast. If you're like, hey, you know what? It's missing from 10 Bell Pod. Jake Manning talking at 200 miles per minute. Uh, <laughs> that's what I want more of in my life than... I highly suggest you check out uh, the gimmick table, the High Spots Live auction, which I will be hosting every Thursday for an indeterminate amount of time. So today is one of the big ones, someone we have been building to since we started this podcast. We are talking about one of the most beloved wrestlers by both fans and peers, the great Owen Hart. Lots of people talk about how he was the youngest of the hard children, but I'd like to say that's when Helen and Stu finally realized they fucked perfection and created what they'd been trying to all those years. <laughs> so we covered Bruiser Brody and Vice snuck in their Brody episode right before we released ours, which is fine. Coincidences happen, whatever. I've had Owen planned for our 50th episode since basically our first episode, and now Vice has done it again. They'll release their episode like a week before this comes out, maybe two weeks, I'm not sure. So what I want to know right now is which one of you motherfuckers are a double agent for Vice is that what you want to do, Jake? You want to write clickbait articles now? Is that is that what you're selling me out for? 
I definitely don't want to write them, but I'm definitely going to be a subject to one very soon, especially if somebody, <laughs> somebody takes a look at my DMs right now because it is a war zone. <laughs> I'm going to get canceled before, before long, so I'm glad we're getting this 50th episode out before that happens. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's just start. Owen James Hart was born May 7th, 1965 in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Owen was obviously born into the legendary Hart wrestling family and was the youngest child of Stu and Helen Hart. Owen grew up with an entire basketball team roster of siblings, including Smith, Bruce, Keith, Wayne, Dean, Ellis, Georgia, Brett, Allison, Ross, and Diana. And Kareem. <laughs> oh, who could forget Kareem? Yeah, His he... name was really Lou, though. Yeah, yeah. Lou? And he was the saltiest one of the bunch. Like, if you talk to anybody, nobody ever liked playing with him. Like, nobody. You know, I mean, I like him. Very socially conscious, very interesting to listen to talk, but all his teammates hated him. Owen Amateur wrestled on the Ernest Manning High School team and was good enough to earn a college wrestling scholarship. High school is also where he met his future wife, Martha. Around junior or senior year, they married July 1st, 1989, and had two children. And boy, Martha is a big part of Owen's story before and after his tragic passing. I got to applaud all of these guys that like meet the love of their life in high school. And they're like, yeah, this girl and I'm done. Like, I don't I don't think I'm built that way. Like, I think I'm built more like Jimmy McNulty from The Wire. But uh, it's just it's got to be refreshing especially if you have like a passion, like something like professional wrestling or comedy or, or business or, or something that you're like, Oh, this is what I want to do with my life. But then when it comes to your love, you're like, Oh no, I met you in high school. I'm done. Like, and I don't have to yeah. worry about that at all. You're my wife. We're going to have kids. We're going to be happy together. And I'm done. Like, I can't tell you the exhausting amount of effort it takes just to mitigate the issues that I have in that sector of my life. So I, uh -huh. anybody yeah. like that, I, I can only imagine that that's probably why Owen was such a big river is because like, oh, I need to do something with my time. If I were in the same room as me from even 10 years ago, I'd want to punch me in the face. Oh, I couldn't God. imagine being legally bound to someone I met when I was 18, when I was a dumb fucking 18-year-old. <laughs> I remember my first girlfriend in high school and us having those serious lovey-dovey thoughts of like, okay, we'll both go to the same college and then we'll get married and blah, 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 blah. And seriously, the thought of that right now, not as a joke, I would jump in front of a bus. Yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, what the fuck? And Owen did it and he actually... It was real. It wasn't just, you know, settling or whatever. It was like, he, he found it. Yeah. Uh, some people hit a home run and never look back. And some people are on their third divorce by age 30. So for someone who is one of the greatest, if not the greatest in-ring performers of all time, Owen did not want to be a pro wrestler, at least at first. But he kept getting sucked back into the business one way or the other. You hear this get tossed around a lot, but for someone to be that damn good at pro wrestling, he had to at least love it like a little bit, right? Yeah, part of me when I heard that about maybe Owen didn't love it as much or, you know, the money is what brought him into it. And then you see the matches that he would have and it's like no one who was kind of apathetic or just doing it to do it could kind of celebrate the art form as well as he could in the ring. He did a backflip off the top rope. Like, and just landed on his feet. You mean to tell me he's just like, nah, bro, I, I'm just here, whatever, and does a backflip and land on his feet? Like, that's infuriating to me. Like, I love, I love <laughs> professional wrestling, and at no point in time, 
even at my mo- most athletically best gifted <laughs> at any moment in time that I'd be, ever be able to do that. My knees would explode. My ankles would shatter. He's just like, yeah, I'm just going to jump off the top rope, do a backflip, land on my feet. You know, and he's just like, I don't know about this wrestling thing. I guess I'll make money at it. We'll see what happens. And that means if he actually cared, if he actually cared about professional wrestling, he would have been Will Ospreay before Will Ospreay existed. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. by that, by that logic, if he really was just like, hey, man, I'm just doing wrestling, you know, if that case, then he could have took that athletic ability and parlayed that into something else. So, you know, growing up in the Hart family with all his brothers, he was put in a headlock or two in his day, but he would have his first official match ever at 18 years old, wearing a mask, wrestling as the first ever British Bulldog and teaming up with a dynamite kid. I assume this is in Stampede Wrestling. It's a little vague. After graduating university, Owen had a short run wrestling as Bronco Owen Hart over in London, England, before coming back to Canada, where he trained in the famed Hart Dungeon, settling into his father's promotion, Stampede Wrestling. I'm going to throw in a lot more nerd trivia stuff, because going through Owen's filmography, uh, matchography, there's so many good little sidebars, and we're going to start right off. Uh, when Owen was in the UK, like Nick's, I think this is March 87, he puts on like a 20-minute map-based, just brilliant match against Marty Jones. It's on YouTube. He's, he's announced his Bronco Owen Hart. It's, it's good stuff. He's wrestling his ass off and looking like a five-year, seven-year veteran within 18 months. With Brett, Davey, and Anvil off working for Vince, Owen was destined to be the star of his dad's company, Owen would spend a big chunk of 1986 tag teaming. He'd team up with his brother some before going on a big run with Ben Basarab. And Ben is one of those stampede lifers who stuck with the company through all the openings, all the closings. And Ben actually married into the Hart family when he got hitched to Allison Hart. And it's funny that you just briefly mentioned like the opening and closing. Like the only reason that Stampede is happening right now as Owen breaks in is just because Basically, what happened was when Vince was going around talking to a lot of the promoters and say, hey, I want to expand further. Uh, I want to come into your area and start running shows, but um, this is your territory. I will pay you for it, which he didn't have to. And he didn't to a lot of people. He just came into their areas and ran shows just like Memphis, Minneapolis, wherever. He just came into an area, paid for his television program to be in syndication in that area and then he would run shows there make all the money and then put that territory out of business but before he would ever do that he'd always go to the promoter like hey i i want to give you something for your area and most promoters in that time are the types that just basically told him fuck off but Stu was one of the few who were like yeah absolutely and i will sell basically my promotion quote unquote to you if so if that means anything it's usually just letters but he's just like i'll i'll sell to you but can you give you know my sons and my sons-in-law a job and down to my kid as well so like yeah sure and that's basically how that deal came about and then when vince didn't take bruce bruce is like fuck vince uh i need to be a star <laughs> we're bringing stampede back and they brought it back like months later even though basically, <laughs> it's the funniest thing ever so it's like it's funny that Vince always had a soft spot for Stu because basically he fucked him. <laughs> like <laughs> he paid him for his territory to stop running shows and like WWF start running more, you know, in Canada from time to time. And then all of a sudden, like he was just like, he took his money and, and then he gave him his basically sons and gave him all a job, did everything. he Vince did everything he was going to. And then 
Studios open, stampede back up again, and start running shows again. Basically, because Bruce <laughs> wanted it, and Bruce wanted to be a star, and wasn't one of the people that got hired. So it just it's it's so funny because there's a like if you see like the listing of stampede matches, they stop, and then a few months later they start back up again, and it's just it's I think it's hilarious that like o- <laughs> only Stu Hart could get away with that. He's like, I'll take your money. You do every, you do everything on your end, and then I'm just gonna fuck you in the end. And Vince is like, <laughs> Yeah, I'm cool with it. <laughs> if we know anything about Vince, it's just it's funny. And and as you've heard time and time again by other promotions, the fact that Stu had such a soft spot in Vince's heart, even after doing that, I don't know. But at the same time, too, it's not like the WWF's gonna go to Saskatchewan. Yeah, it, it, it's a whole heck of a lot. Like once every six months at best so i guess like these areas need to be serviced with professional wrestling you know like stampede will go to saskatchewan once a week or twice a you know or twice a month or something like that so i i guess it makes more sense that way you said he fucked him but i think it the way you described it's more making love so i think that's how it happened that's what i do i have him and i make love and then i make kids that's what i do or Vince just rolled with it, made believe everything was fine, and just like Joe Pesci at the end of Goodfellas, getting shot in the back of the head, Vince destroyed the Hart family years later with the long con. It's not the end of Goodfellas, it's like the middle of Go- Goodfellas. Yeah. Let's keep that in mind. That's Thank you, thank you, Jake. Uh, you get points for that. You nailed it right <laughs> three there. Three-fourths into Goodfellas, <laughs> yep, not yep, the there end. You go. Three-fourths <laughs> into Goodfellas, Joe Pesci dies. Just let you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Owen and Ben would start out mostly working against the masters of disaster, Duke Myers and Carrie Brown, eventually winning the Stampede tag titles from them August 8th, 86. That is two straight episodes with a Duke Myers reference. Yeah, go back and and listen to the Andy Kaufman episode. I got a great story about Duke Myers, but uh, we got a lot of road to travel down this one. So go back and check that one out on the Andy Kaufman episode. Owen and Ben would hang on to those titles until October when they dropped them to the Viet Cong Express, Hiroshi Hase and Fumihiro Nakura. I'm sure the Viet Cong Express was treated with uh, respect and not a hill tag team. Dude, you can see based on their name, that's totally what happened. <laughs> oh, you have to put some goddamn respect on Hiroshi Hase, all right? That oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was amazing. He also took everything the fucking Steiner brothers could dish out to him, and he just like, yeah, sure, I'll do all that and then run for Japanese parliament and win, so fuck off. <laughs> like, <laughs> Later that October, on Halloween, Owen would get into a feud that would really put some heat behind him, fighting over the Stampede North American heavyweight title with Makan Singh, a.k.a. Mike Shaw, a.k.a. Bastion Booger. And here's a weird sentence. There would be no Owen Hart without Bastion Booger. That may be... That may be a bit of an exaggeration, and Owen would have risen to the top either way. But as you know from our Mike Shaw episode, this is the feud that put Owen Hart on the map. I mean, you got Owen getting blinded. He's coming in with eye protective wear. Crowd's going crazy. I mean, it really helped establish Owen as a babyface and how to kind of build a narrative within a storyline as a character. Owen and Mike would spend the next couple of years wrestling over the bell. Owen lost on Halloween. Then beat McCann for the title January 1987, lost it back to Mike January 30th, with Owen winning it for the final time April 10th, 87, holding it for over a year before dropping it back to McCann May 6th, 88. 
these matches are very hard to find as well as his runs that are supposed to be epic with Dynamite Kid and others in Stampede. But these matches are phenomenal. They're remembered fondly. And hyperbole aside, they made Owen a star. And they did a lot for Mike as well. Yeah, the the big thing that I felt we talk about it in the Mike Shaw episode, but tape trading around this time really started to become a thing. And Stampede became one of the hottest commodities because the work that they were putting out was really blowing people away. So it was that tape you had to get. And with Owen's big run here with Mike Shaw, Owen became a star with the Smarks because of all the tape trading. It's like, you got to get this shit because Owen's on it and he's doing all these moves you've never seen before. And one of the coolest things I found when I was doing research on this, kind of this uh, word of mouth spreading through tape nerds and people in the business, was they even thought about bringing Flair up there to do a title defense in Calgary against Owen. But with Stu's relationship with WWF, it never panned out. So summer of 87, Owen would start working in Japan, where he wrestled for New Japan. And during these tours, he would work with Akira Maido, a young Scott Hall, Tatsumi Fujinami, Kobayashi, as well as Jushin Liger, both before and after the Liger gimmick. Yamada! And it was Owen's work in Stampede and Japan that would earn him Pro Wrestling Illustrated's Rookie of the Year 1987. On May 27, 1988, Owen defeated Hiroshi Hase for the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Championship, becoming the first job-stealing white immigrant to win the title. That dirty fucking gaijin. Well, and also this time, like the junior division in New Japan, it, it kind of saw like a, like, like a second win. Because once Dynamite and uh, Davy Boy jumped to All Japan... It kind of like took the wind out of like the junior division in New Japan. Uh, they all I had was really Kobayashi and Cobra, and they kind of like drifted off. So like that junior division in New Japan had kind of been stagnant until Owen came around, till Liger came around, and this was almost kind of like a a renaissance in a sense uh, before we saw the big explosion in '94 for New Japan juniors. With Owen's reign, he only had one defense, but it was a hell of a one I'd recommend. It's, uh, he goes up against Yamada, which became Jushin Thunder Liger. Owen, just seeing Owen with that belt coming in the ring, he's all fired up. I know he's on commentary, so you understood the level that of respect that it gave for Onoki to be there. It's a joined-in-progress match, but damn, man, the last six minutes is fucking fun stuff. Owen's bouncing all over the place. You see Liger turn into Liger, and Yamada goes for the victory roll, and Owen sits down on him for the pin, which I only saw in this match and another match, which we will get to in all my tape watching. But it's really cool to see Owen's lone title defense. His reign would last about a month as he lost the title to Shiro Koshinaka. Yeah, that's right. Uh, (laughs) On June 24th, 1988, and kind of a weird finish here, Owen hit Shiro with that tombstone he did and a moonsault and Shiro basically no sells it gets up catches Owen with a very cool surprise pin and a bridge to beat him these late 80s motherfuckers don't sell a goddamn thing this entire IWGP junior division is outlaw mud show bullshit Owen would then head home for about a month, but between being a heart, carving out his own piece of wrestling fame, WWE would take interest and sign Owen to the company summer of 1988. 
Instead of promoting Owen as Brett's younger brother, WWF decided to put him in a mask gimmick, a superhero, Mighty Mouse, you know, the whole Vince thing he loves. And I believe Brett took credit for this. He said he wanted to do this for himself, thinking that if things didn't pan out for WWF, he'd just leave, take off the mask, and be fine. Owen's first match would be a house show in Redding, California, beating Terry Gibbs as the Blue Angel. Now, Bruce Pritchard said that this was a mistake by the ring announcer, and it was always Blue Blazer. But, you know, from there, it's a game of telephone. It's the announcers say it wrong. It's reported back to Meltzer or whoever, and then it's recorded by history with this error. However, Owen would get his TV debut wrestling a wrestling challenge match that aired September 11th, 1988 when the correctly named Blue Blazer would take on none other than our whole effing show, George South. I asked George, and as I've always asked George for extra research on these episodes, um, the way I always do it is I always tell him, like, hey, I need to ask you about somebody for Tendell Pot. And he goes, oh, okay, well, who is it? And then I give it a pause, and then I say the name, and one of three things happens. <laughs> I I either get, ow, God, oh, he was awful. Or he just like, or he gives a look on his face like, oh. like <laughs> that's usually a good sign that he doesn't have any interaction with him. But then, of course, you get the reaction that I got when I asked him about Owen where he puts both his hands up and moves them in a circular motion and goes, oh, I love him. And then bring him together for a clap. Oh, I love him. That's basically it. And then, of course, George looks at me without missing a beat and goes, you know, I had his first match with WWF as Blue Blazer. And I'm like, yes, George, I know that. That's why I'm talking to you right now. So George told me all about the match and he remembers it vividly. And I wish I recorded him telling me this. This is the, I've kind of heard bits and pieces of this story, but for whatever reason, the, the day that I asked George, this was also like a day we recorded daddy to work. wrestle. And he gave the best version he's ever told the story between the NBA wrestlers and the Charlotte police department at a charity basketball game. Go check out that episode. It, I think it's like three thirty-two or whatever. Or yeah, I think it's like three thirty-two. George was just in a storytelling mood that day, so I wish I would have recorded like, the story on this debut match with Owen because this is the best I've ever heard him tell it. I've heard bits and pieces of it, but he was the most collectively best telling of this story. And it's, it's legendary, and it sticks with George. And the reason why is because George was having this great match with Owen Hart as the Blue Blazer. Everything was going great. And then when it came time for the finish, which uh, George said that Owen went up for a 450, which was not a 450. It's a, it's a moonsault <laughs> because it doesn't make a difference to George because as a job guy, George, it's like, oh, this guy's going to the top. I'm going to lie here. I don't give a fuck what you're going to do. <laughs> Just don't kill me. You can call you can call that whatever you want. I'm staying right here. Uh, know what the finishing move was me laying flat while you jump off the top rope you can call that whatever you can sit and call that you can call it 450 360 728 and and all you're doing is doing a regular splash i don't care call it what you want anyways owen goes to the top and jumps off for the moonsault and just crushes george's head 
Like oh, it's no. all <laughs> knee to the fucking head. It's dome. Uh, it, it was it was like no. a like I don't know. If, uh, George was, wasn't really clear if like Owen slipped, but he said that he even came off where the, like the moonsault didn't look good and landed right on George's head and just murdered him. And as soon as like he landed, Owen was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry." And <laughs> like pinned him immediately and realized he kind of kind of fucked up the finish. So George has just knocked Loopy. He's just lying there for the one, two, three. Blue Blazer celebrates, goes to the back. George has to be helped to the back. Like he's got oh, re- no. the referee. Like, he's got somebody else like carry him to the back. And, he, and he's walking to the back. And as he gets there, Vince is right in Owen's face. And George can just tell as soon as he walks to the curtain, like, oh, Vince is pissed. And, and Vince is just very angrily talking to him and immediately tells him, you need to go back out there. Like looks right at Owen, like you need to, you, you need to go, you need to, you need to go back out there. That was awful. George was like so knocked out and so loopy. He didn't realize what had happened. He's just like, oh man, that really sucks that Owen's got to go out and wrestle again. He's, around, <laughs> he's only going to, he's only getting paid for, for one match. <laughs> It really sucks that he's got to go back out there and wrestle again. And right as like Vince said, you got to go back out there again. George didn't realize that he had to go back out too. <laughs> so a concussed George South was turned around physically because he couldn't do it himself because he was so knocked unconscious. He was concussed and then pushed out the curtain. So he's George, as George described it, I was just staggered. Like I kept like wandering to the ring. I just followed the light. Cause I thought I was dying. I just looked where all the lights were and I walked towards it. Turns out it was the ring. And of course the whole time, like, well, George is concussed. His big concern is not like, you know, I'm hurt. I'm banged up. But George's whole concern is holy shit. All these people are going to think this is fake. <laughs> Cause keep in mind, like a year or two ago, George was doing jobs on Jim Crocker promotions and you know, Dusty Rhodes is digging himself to prove that we're, you know, we're actually doing real wrestling here. Not that bullshit that WWF is doing. And basically the whole match consisted of blue blazer. It came out same intro entrance and everything. And all it was was lock up body slam and hit the moonsault again. So when you see that debut match, I think it's been on a couple of DVDs for Owen. It's out there online. That that match is actually clipped. That finish that you see was after they'd already retaken it and spliced in the, the, this other thing. As George always says, he was just like, oh, they didn't care I was concussed. There was no doctors <laughs> telling me I can't go back out there. They're just like, no, go. And I didn't even realize my my dumb tail didn't even recognize that I'm just going back out there again. I thought that was like, oh, that's so bad that Owen's got to wrestle another match on this taping. And I'm like, oh, nope. <laughs> I wonder who. I wonder who he's going to wrestle. And they just pushed me back out there. <laughs> Watching this match, it was weird to hear Bobby Heenan say out loud, George South. That was surreal. Yeah. And then there's seriously like the opening to this match. I, if I ever see George or Jake, you can relay this, but it's fucking brilliant. George is in the ring and he's, and you can hear him. If you really listen, he screams, watch this ref. And he extends his hand to Owen who shakes George's hand, which causes George to immediately go dirty and kick Owen right in the stomach and block <laughs> up a headlock. It is so fucking funny and brilliant. I, I love the hell out of it. It's also, I like, watching this match because at first you know this is his debut uh blue blazers debut so at first the crowd's kind of like rabble 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 and then he hits a couple really pretty suplexes and they're like okay all right and then he hits the moonsault big old pop and it's like you just watched owen get over with george's help uh in that match right before your eyes it was, it was fun to see 
Well, it's because totally. they basically sent him back out there again and were like, do that moonsault <laughs> better this time. So everybody's like, yeah, I hit it this time. <laughs> yeah, that was weird you said that, Jake, because in my notes I had, Owen hits a perfect moonsault on George for the win. <laughs> well, he had two tries. <laughs> From here, Owen would chug along facing Danny Davis, Jose Estrada, and Steve Lombardi before getting his first spot on a WWF pay-per-view, the 88 Survivor Series. There's one match you got to watch around this time. It's Owen Hart, sorry, the Blue Blazer versus Akeem, a.k.a. One Man Gang, and this is in Philadelphia. And the announcers are bringing it up like, the Blue Blazer, who is this guy? I don't know, blah, 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 blah. And then they immediately cut to a sign in the crowd that was obviously Smart Marks, who read the Wrestling Observer, holding a sign, putting over Owen Hart. And it's so surreal to kind of see those Wrestling Observer readers back then with evidence of them in the crowd. The way that Philly crowd totally roasts Akeem and calls him one-man gang and just loves everything Owen does because they've been waiting, hearing about this dude, reading about him, and now they finally get to see him. It was just surreal to see Wrestling Observer smart marks in the 80s with proof. Kicking off the 1988 Survivor Series, Blue Blazer would team with the Ultimate Warrior, Brutus Beefcake, Jim Brusel, and Sam Houston against the Honky Tonk Man, Greg Valentine, Outlaw Ron Bass, Bat News Brown, and Danny Davis. They, they kind of had the rookie come off the bench and play a few minutes here. Like, Blue Blazer doesn't do much besides getting eliminated by Greg Valentine in the figure four after he landed on his knees when Hunky shoved him off the top rope. But Owen's team did go on to get the win. He monkey flips Honky Talk Man, which I yeah. enjoyed immensely. After Survivor Series, it was more months of steady work going up against Red Rooster, Akeem, a.k.a. Zane Riley and stopping off at 89 Saturday Night's Main Event 20 to take on the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase, March 11th, 89. Before this match, he gets to cut a promo with Mean Gene, which is, that's fun. <laughs> he comes out to a pretty good pop before getting ambushed by Ted. The, the suicide dive that Owen hits on Ted DiBiase looked like one of those dives where it just screamed Ted internally going, oh, these fucking young kids and their <laughs> high-flying bullshit because he hits him hard and they splat. Ted catches Owen with a surprise power slam and puts him down for the three count in just about four minutes. Then Owen would have a spot in his first ever WrestleMania at WrestleMania 5 where he took on the great Mr. Perfect in a match we touched on in our Perfect episode. It's uh, short, it's fun, as you just wish it would have been a six-hour-long Iron Man match. There is a house show recording of them in the Meadowlands, and they go about 12, 13 minutes. A lot better match, back and forth. It's kind of the match that I wish the WrestleMania match would be, but it's definitely worth looking out for. Owen was kind of the king of those two to three minute matches. Like, there's a badass match that we'll talk about later with one, two, three kid from a king yeah, in the ring. Yeah. There's like a couple other occasions where it's like, Owen, we need a match that's in minute and 42 seconds. <laughs> Somebody went long. We And I know this is WrestleMania seven, but we need you to go back out there. <laughs> like there, there are like multiple occasions where you need Owen Hart to go out there with somebody and just crush it for two to three minutes. And just, <laughs> and Owen's like, yeah, I got this. Where like anybody else like, I can't get my shit in or I don't know what I'm going to do or, okay, well let's fucking bullshit around where owen was always like okay we got two to three minutes great let's go do that it's like i, I can fit about nine spots in there this is easy 
So Owen had two pay-per-views under him, including a WrestleMania, plus an appearance on WWF's flagship program, Saturday Night's Main Event. Uh, He was getting tons of house show dates, TV spots, which it all sounds great on paper, but he was mostly wrestling job guys. He was losing on TV. And for someone who was the man back home in Canada and even in Japan, uh, he wasn't exactly thrilled with a spot in the company. And it got much worse for him after Mania as he'd spend the next couple of months basically losing out every match he had to Bat News Brown, Mr. Perfect, Greg Valentine, and Barry Horowitz. This is my Mighty Mouse. This is what I want. I got a guy that comes out with a cape. He's short. This is exactly what I want. And know what I'm going to do with him? I'm going to job him the fuck out every chance I fucking get. This is my dream. I want my Mighty Mouse character so I can pick the fuck out of him. Just like I have my entire childhood psyche. And then the guy thinks, like, oh, I'm doing Vince's character. I'm doing his Mighty Mouse character. He's going to take care of me. No, fucking wrong. Ha ha. I'm going to fucking job your ass to a fucking bloody Ha 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 ha. By summer of 89, Owen had left WWF and headed back to Stampede. Owen hopped right back into the title pitcher and had a feud with Larry Cameron over the Stampede North American title. But by December 89, Stampede would close its doors. And around this time, Owen was known as the man of a thousand and one holds, which people might know has been used a lot. Is there Has it been used in the past that you know of, Jake? that moniker oh i'm sure i'm sure i'm sure jim i'm sure jim Cornette, like on owen's episode will pull out some magazine article from montreal in 1934 and like see right here (laughs) rene capantier was actually the man of a thousand and one hold and he did the whole character like that and then of course i'm sure it's he's got a whole thing 1934 there was only 501 holds so it has evolved at least (laughs) Owen would head back to Japan where he'd take part in a tournament for the IWGP junior heavyweight title facing Liger, Black Tiger, and Jake Manning's twin, Biff Wellington. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely find the two singles matches that Owen had with Pegasus Kid, who we all know is redacted. There's a handheld match, which is probably the better of the two, but there's a couple sequences in the regular match that just legitimately are just gorgeous looks like pro wrestling poetry there's a great visual in the 626 90 match where it's redacted gives a springboard dive onto owen and he pushes him through the fucking guardrail where owen gets stuck in between the rails it's a gorgeous visual also the liger match 428 91 metzler gave it four and a half stars yeah blah 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 but it, it lets you know what they did in that match everybody's pumped up the announcers the crowd yeah, I mean, you get Liger at his best, you get Owen at his best. The finish to the match, spoiler alert if you want to watch it by yourself, but it's one of the most brutal as fuck finishes I've ever seen. Liger hits a top rope DDT on Owen. And it's not one of those DDTs where you roll through and it kind of looks like a suplex. You see Owen drop off the top rope and plant his fucking head in the mat from Liger giving him a DDT. And then I would also have to recommend War was another promotion that was kind of New Japan around this time, given similar product. And he's got a 20-minute match with Ultimo Dragon, which you get to see those two dudes, given 20 minutes. Owen's in his fucking goofy high-energy gear, which is, you know, not the best. We'll get to that. I'm jumping a little ahead, but uh, to cover his Japan matches, definitely worth watching. You get to see Owen scream Ichiban and people cheer for him. It's, it's kind of sweet. And I, I wanted to ask, Jake, have you ever taken a top rope DDT? Oh, I know what you're talking about. I remember seeing it on a tape, and I started thinking, like, yeah. could 
could I use that as a finish? <laughs> could I take that as a finish? Like I, I definitely thought about it and, and rewound it and analyzed it. And uh, I don't know, maybe in the, in the headspace that I'm going to be at uh, when we come back to actually professional wrestling, like if, <laughs> if wrestling comes back to a point that there's thousands of people, the headspace that I'm in of giving everything and everybody, like I might start doing topes. I don't know. So uh, I might, (laughs) I might go balls of the wall and my finish might be a top rope DDT going forward. Hell yeah. Owen would also head to Germany to work for Otto Vance over in catch wrestling, taking part in 1990s catch cup before heading to Mexico as blue blazer at least until he lost the Blue Blazer gimmick in a Mascara Contra Mascara Disputa con El Canic. This match is online too, and I watched it. If you just want some good history to see Blue Blazer, there's only two falls, so it's kind of confusing. And then going back to Germany real quick, I need to stress this. There's there's a match with Scott Hall, and there's a couple matches with Fit Finley online, which are really fun to watch, and it's cool to see those guys work together. But the thing that I did not count on was how over as fuck... Owen Hart is in Germany. They love the fuck out of Owen. Anytime Owen's in the ring, he just starts doing pointing up and screaming Owen. The crowd starts going bonkers like it's JYD in Mid-South. There's at one point in one of his Fit Finley matches, there, I think there's a song being sung in the audience because they're very interactive, and Owen almost acts as an orchestra conductor to go along with them, and it's a fucking gorgeous moment of how over- Owen was and how much Germany loved that dude. And this is this is 1990. So, I mean, it had to be a bunch of smart marks, loving the Hart family, loving Owen's work. And it, it was one of the most surprising things of just like, why the fuck is Owen this over in Germany? Maybe Owen was so over in the German people for his blonde hair and blue eyes. Yep, we're going here. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to skate right past that, but uh, I was going <laughs> to say you, I was going to mention that, but I definitely wasn't going to use a German accent, but we all know how Nicholas yeah, is just yeah. itching to use a voice yeah. these days, thinking that's going to make a joke better, and it doesn't. And then he makes it a cold open at the beginning of the most important podcast that we've ever had in our history. So, great job. But uh, to rewind back to Mexico, I've actually there's a there's a couple commercial tapes that came out uh, this period of time that actually had Owen in like a multi-man tag as a blue blazer. And I distinctly remember a spot with with Owen when he was a blue blazer and he had a luchador in the ring and he was in a hold and Owen just executed a maneuver while the guy was just standing there. And it was like. Uh, it, it's hard to describe because and, and I had to rewind it multiple times like they were just in a top wrist lock and then it turned around into like a head scissors or a tilt a whirl something or a rot like uh, it was hard to describe what the fuck Owen did and then there's a part <laughs> of me that was just like oh fuck I think like Owen didn't even call that they just got in that position Owen did all that shit and the guy was just standing there and then Owen was like front roll and it's just like, uh, it's incredible. And, and, and it was seeing Blue Blazer wrestle in Mexico that made me appreciate all those guys who wrestled in Mexico against guys 
that obviously didn't speak English quite as well. You didn't have YouTube, so you couldn't watch somebody beforehand to see all their spots. Like nowadays, if you wrestle somebody who's like a big star in Mexico, you can look up his matches on YouTube, go through it, and then you could kind of suss it out. Like when I wrestled one of the New Japan Young Boys, like I pulled up his match, I pulled up some of my match, like, see, I could do this, or this spot right here. So you can communicate using video and explain it, but... In an era where you didn't even get to see the guy till you got in the ring, and then they have this ornate thing that you have to do, uh, must have been challenging. But for Owen to come out and be like, yeah, I got this ornate thing too. Deal with it. Front roll. Then in March of 91, Owen would work for World Championship Wrestling, debuting on an episode of Power Hour, beating Rip Rogers in a match that was filmed March 16th, 91. And actually, I talked to Rip Rogers about this match, and when I said, "What do you think Whoa. about oh, what do you say? What do you think about Owen Hart?" and he goes, "Fucking love him, fucking motherfucker, that motherfucker, I fucking love him." <laughs> if you actually go on the YouTube uh, link for this match, you will see Rip Rogers comment personally on his YouTube video and put Owen over. Not just once, but he has three separate comments putting Owen over. <laughs> like it's funny, Rip Rogers is the the cursing George South. Owen would also team up with Ricky Morton to win a short TV match that you can find with a quick Google. But there's a lot of house show stuff that didn't make it to TV that sounds fun. Owen teaming with Brad Armstrong. Owen and Flying Brian teaming up to take on the Freebirds. And I, I wonder if any of this is floating around somewhere on planet Earth. I found, uh, I think his six TV matches are all on YouTube you can find. I couldn't find any of his house show fan cam or anything. But uh, Nick mentioned Pillman. The thing that I found that they were rumored they were if Owen was going to stay, they were going to form a tag team called Wings, and they were really going to push Pillman and Owen together. Which, if you watch Owen's matches, no matter who is commentating, Jr. Uh, Heyman, Shivani, they put Owen over big fucking time, and you can tell. They're really hoping to kind of build this dude up into a star. It's also fun to hear the commentators talk about how he has a great background in the sport and he comes from lineage, but they don't actually want to mention Bret Hart since Bret Hart was Bret Hart yeah. at the time. <laughs> it's, it's cool to watch them dance around it as gently as they can. So Owen never signed a long-term contract with the WCW, mostly because he didn't want to move to Atlanta. But it makes you wonder what the ripple effect on pro wrestling would have been if he did stay with WCW. Without committing to a company, Owen would again head back to Japan, Mexico, Germany. But as you know, all roads led back to the WWF and Owen would sign with Vince for the second time. Around this time, if you're ever wondering what Owen would have been like in ECW, look up Owen versus Takayuki Izuka. It's a match in Philly. You get Todd Gordon as the ring announcer. John Finnegan, ECW veteran ref, is in there. Him and this dude go solid 20 minutes. It's a Philly crowd. They're appreciative. They're clapping. It's it's the good Philly crowd. It's not the throwing batteries at Santa Claus crowd. But it's a really interesting match to see Owen in, in what would later become ECW. Uh, could you imagine him ribbing New Jack and getting stabbed with like a corkscrew from a wine opener? That would not be good. Oh, my God. <laughs> By the time Owen came back to WWF, Bret Hart had started a singles run, leaving Hart Foundation teammate Jim Neidhart kind of spinning his wheels. So they paired the two up, and Jim and Owen formed the new foundation. Owen would make his second WWF TV debut as part of the new foundation, beating the great tag team of Barry Horowitz and Dwayne Gill on a match 
that aired on Wrestling Challenge December 1st, 91. And Jim and Owen hit a ton of just beautiful tag team combination moves to pick up the win. Can we just talk about Horowitz and Dwayne Gill is just like a the Legion of Doom? Yeah, of <laughs> it's so good. I, I like marked out when I saw that. <laughs> Owen and Jim had their first big pay-per-view match at the Royal Rumble, beating the Orient Express, Kato, and Pat Tanaka. By February, Jim Neidhart got fired, so they replaced him with a new partner, Coco Beware, forming high energy, and Coco had some big crinkly jackets to fill. (laughs) The one thing that I think kind of gave me a surprise, and I showed this to Nick too, Type in Bret Hart and high energy or high energy Bret Hart Owen. And as serious as Bret Hart is and as kind of very stern as he is in most shoots and interviews, watching Bret Hart laugh like a like a schoolgirl thinking about Owen having to do high energy, wearing all the flowery colored stuff. Just watching Bret react that way shows how much he loved Owen. And it's just weird to see Bret Hart laugh. It was jarring. Like... <laughs> Because even after winning a title, it's more of like an intense, fuck you, fuck yeah. It's never like a, yay, you know, I'm laughing and enjoying life. It's all, I'm the hitman. I don't know why I made him Russian. Uh, (laughs) I'm the goddamn hitman. I I have to be serious about my legacy. I have to be serious. And the rest of Nick's uh, Bret Hart impersonation was, I must break you. (laughs) Yeah, I was just saying, uh, none of us have a good Bret Hart impersonation. If you want to hear a good Bret Hart, get Rich Swan, like hands down, the best. He can quote verbatim, word for word, some of the classic promos, especially the, I love you, Owen. Like he does, he can do that whole thing. (laughs) Like you haven't lived until Rich Swan has put his arm around you. Just like Brett did on Raw, and he goes, I love you, Owen. And it gives you the whole <laughs> spiel that he gave Owen. I remember I picked you up from school. Those kids were picking on you. <laughs> like, when, he, when he does that to you, you feel a little bit. You're like, oh, you, you've been there for me. <laughs> One random match I found was, uh, which kind of paired up two dudes that you never really got to see, was uh, Brain Busters versus High Energy. So you get to see Owen and Arn work together. They have a great little sequence, and then it's, it's, it's weird because they, they have a botch. And it's like, oh, two good dudes, and they kind of fuck up. But it's that whole thing of, like, I th- might have been the only time they ever worked. And sometimes, you know, if you don't have the familiarity, you're going to kind of botch something. Well, and that's funny because I think they just ask Arn on Arn's podcast about Owen, and he goes, I've never met him before. Oh, no. <laughs> 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 like, or, or he said something very brief, like he didn't have nothing – nothing came to mind especially like a botch in a match he just like well i can't say i've ever had too much interactions (laughs) with him i think it was like a four minute match so i'll give Arn the benefit of the doubt on that give a little leeway i did wrestle him what did cagematch.com say (laughs) (laughs) high energy would continue a house show feud with the beverly brothers that owen and jim had started Owen would also get his second WrestleMania appearance in March at WrestleMania 8, where Reba motherfucking McIntyre sang the national anthem, and it was wonderful. Fancy did not let you down, Reba. <laughs> I promise you that much. This match is somehow shorter than his first WrestleMania match, where he beats Skinner in over a minute. I think the bump of the match is Owen taking a gigantic mouth-spitting spew of chewing tobacco Uh. all over his face, which he has to wrestle in for the rest of it. Skinner hits a scorpion death drop, and Owen kicks out. That's one of those, like, what are we doing moves like this back in, you know, fucking 92 or (laughs) 3? 
We got a goddamn minute, Michael. We got to get them all in. <laughs> we don't got time for arm drags in a minute and a half. We got to fucking go, motherfucker. And I just, it still fucking cracks me up that Skinner exists in professional wrestling. <laughs> and it just, it's, it's so typical Vince, like, first time meeting. What are you into? I hunt alligators. You're going to hunt alligators as your character. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I've always heard that story about Vince even before I got into wrestling. So I've always had in my head my first time of meeting Vince McMahon. I would sit down and just he'd be like, how's it going, pal? You having a good day? I'd be like, I used to do Boy Scouts. I'm a legit Eagle Scout. I want to be called the Man Scout. (laughs) Man Scout. I've always been very active in the Boy Scouts of America. I was actually an assistant scout master at one point in time. Like I just would just beat it over Vince's head like right away this is what I want to do 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 I wouldn't say anything of the sort like yeah you know I had had a good breakfast today oh you like breakfast huh well guess what you're gonna be a short order cook because you like omelets you know like I wouldn't even just I would I would not leave any room for Aaron for him to come up with anything else so Owen would spend the next several months of 1992 teaming up with Coco, taking on the Beverly Brothers, Bob Bradley with Louis Spicoli, and have a long, long, long house show run with the Nasty Boys. A highlight of high energy would be getting a title shot at Money, Inc. on Primetime Wrestling July 20th, 92, losing by countout after IRS hit Owen in the back of the head with his briefcase. Nick, 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 sorry, it's an attache case. (laughs) There's a difference. Then high energy, now with that good-ass intro music, would get their first and only pay-per-view match at 92 Survivor Series where they took on WWS version of the Dothraki, the Head Shrinkers. <laughs> Not touching that one. You want to do an accent now, Nick? Is this, is this where you do an accent? Do an accent. Do an accent of a proud heritage Samoan people. Why don't you go ahead and make fun of them on, on this podcast? <laughs> So, Young Rakishi, which is my SoundCloud rap name, and Samu get the win after catching him in a power slam and finishing with a big old top rope splash. High Energy would keep battling the Head Shrinkers over the next couple of months until March when the duo parted ways without much of a fuss and Owen started his run as a singles competitor. However, Owen hit a rough patch pretty much right away when March 9th, 93, he took on Bam Bam Bigelow in a Superstars taping, injuring his knee, which put him out of action for a couple of months. Wait, that was a shoot? Because the match, I actually have this in my notes, because Owen does a spot where he runs to the corner, and then he jumps up on the second turnbuckle, or he might have been going to the top, and then does the flying high crossbody. And he botches it, and he lands on his knee. But it almost looked like, it, I have it in my nose, that Owen's so brilliant that he he botched it, but then he incorporated it. Like, oh, I really hurt my knee. And he sells it for the rest of it to make it look like it was part of the narrative for the match. But that was, that was shoot. Here, here I made fun of you for being like fucking Dave Meltzer, and you did some bullshit that I heard him fucking do when I was driving him to Bolo this past year. <laughs> like... He was talking about a match where there was like some sort of like weird thing that happened with Okada and there was like a drop kick spot and he didn't bump off of it. And he was like, well, maybe this is, he did something brilliant where he, the drop kick doesn't affect him or he sees the drop kick coming or, or there's like, well, maybe he fucking just fucked shit up. And then he just went out there and did it again. I'm like, Hey, this worked. Let's try this. Cause I'm a fucking 
artist as opposed to i had this plan and i was telling the story with the drop kick just like you You're like oh he was a genius he did this thing with his knee. maybe he hurt his goddamn knee and he's like i gotta get through this fucking match because i know if i fuck this up he's gonna send me right back out there like george <laughs> south okay like yeah, exactly. He's a genius. How many milliseconds were you in the car with Dave Meltzer before he started talking about Japanese wrestling? Oh, we we walked to the van. He was talking about it. <laughs> we were across the street. We walked to the van. He was already talking about it. But I shouldn't be too hard on Dave. We're gonna do a we're gonna do a fireside chat at Bola. I'm sure. Nice. Uh, coming oh, like I, I like I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna get some fireside chats and I definitely want to get one of the old fucking DM like I have I have questions some very big nerd questions that I don't think anybody's ever asked before Ooh. he is going to have a typed up notarized paper with all the errors we've ever made on this podcast Owen would ease himself back in by May taking on Terry Taylor at house shows and beating up on job guys on Raw and Wrestling Challenge. And he would even head to Memphis and the USWA to be part of the Brett versus Lawler feud. All right, leading into the Memphis stuff, you get Owen actually has a match with Lawler on Wrestling Challenge that kind of sets up the Owen feud and kind of kicks off more publicity to get them into Memphis. Pretty cool. Well, and the thing is, it's interesting about this time is that in WWF at that time, Lawler was like this big heel, but what he was doing at USWA, almost to save face from the crowd, but also kept him strong because he was kind of still the biggest baby face in Memphis. He'd be like, yeah, everything I do up there is just for the money. It's for show. All that stuff's fake, but everything we do here at USWA is for real. And and when I want to be a real professional wrestler, I, I'm here at the USWA and I'm here as a serious competitor. So the fact that Bret Hart and all these other people would come down to Memphis and he'd be like, you guys are part of this clown show. You're now in USWA. This is where the real wrestling happens. So he'd be the biggest heel on WWF's TV, but then he would go to Memphis and people would be like, yes, this is our guy. He's fighting for us. He's fighting against Vince McMahon. He's just there as a double agent and we know it. It was almost, it was almost like that weird dichotomy. So like Bret would come down there. Or, or Owen would come down there and they'd be these big heels, even though the, the big baby faces on TV. I mean, it even got such a fever pitch that they had Vince McMahon come down and basically just be a heel character. And, and of course, Vince is just like, oh, those are a good goddamn idea. You mean everybody in that building is going to hate me? Sign me the fuck up. <laughs> like, so that that's, I suppose, just going there as part of the feud. That's kind of the thing is that, that weird, bizarro world that kind of happened. And that's how Lawler was able to have that happen is he just basically said like, hey, here this is going on over there. This is what's going on. And just being able to lead your audience. And, 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 and at this moment in time, the cat's out of the bag. Everybody knows what wrestling is to, to an extent, but to tell people like, Hey, this is what's going to happen here. And this is going to happen. There is just a next level of genius of Jerry, the King Lawler. So obviously if you're this baby face on WWF TV and you're like, Oh, I just, just want to be a bad guy. Just one time. Cause this fucking travels. Just, I don't want to smile and high five everybody like going to Memphis for like, a weekend worth of shows and just being an asshole and getting it all out. has got to be therapeutic for some of these guys. Yeah. If you want to see Owen and Brett cut a, a heel promo in like a broom closet, it has like that old school Memphis vibe. Watch some of the stuff there. There's even the end for just weird Brett Hart moments at the end of the promo. He, with an accent does the line from cool hand Luke, 
where Bret Hart says, what we have here is a failure to communicate. And he does it like a total fucking redneck. That'll weird you out. Another point is, is that also this gave Owen time to be a heel and for people to see him be a heel, which, you know, three months later, coincidence? I mean, who knows, but it definitely let Owen kind of breathe in a different way and let people see him in a different way. So Owen was actually part of the first wave of WWF wrestlers to go down and work in Memphis and even won the USWA Unified World Heavyweight Championship from Papa Shango before dropping it to Jerry Lawler. There's a great little heel tidbit where Owen's cutting a promo after he supposed he took four pile drivers from Lawler and uh, instead of a neck brace, heel Owen Hart just gets a regular white towel and wraps it around his neck and then cuts a promo and he calls himself the King of Hearts. So there's a lot of shit being laid here. Back in WWF in October, Owen started working a ton of matches against Bastion Booger, which if you're aware of the Stampede Wrestling feud, you'll think that's super cool. If you're not aware, I bet people were just like, oh, weird. As part of the USWA and WWF rivalry, Bret Hart was beefing with Jerry Lawler, which was supposed to lead to a match at Survivor Series 93 with Bret, Owen, Bruce, and Keith Hart taking on Lawler and his team. But Lawler done fucked up and got himself in some legal trouble, which he was later acquitted of. Uh, but it did lead to Lawler getting a temporary ban from WWF TV. So Lawler was replaced by another sexual deviant, Shawn Michaels, teaming up with <laughs> teaming up with the Black Knight, the Blue Knight, and the Red Knight. And the big jacked knight was Jeff Gaylord. The good at wrestling knight was the Red Knight, Barry Horowitz, and the oh Jesus fucking Christ knight was Greg Valentine. I, I, was this like a chess gimmick or what the fuck was this? I never really grasped this. It was supposed to be Jerry Lawler, the king with all his knights, but when he ha he right. got... Uh, okay. Hold on. Can I rebuttal the, the Shawn Michaels sexual deviant uh, <laughs> line? We can discuss how Micah doesn't get the knights with a king all we want, <laughs> but can we just talk about sexual deviant? I didn't deviant? know he was involved. Excuse me that you would you would have such slander. <laughs> in front of my presence knowing how i feel how i've always been a click defender and apologist now don't get me wrong there are legendary stories where maybe sean michaels and marty Jannetty uh did some nefarious things but i'm gonna say that it's more marty than sean uh, uh but as far uh. as sexual deviant Find me the court reports. Find me the <laughs> find me the court cases, and then you can come back to me and say alleged sexual deviant. Okay. <laughs> right. Now, also at the same time, too, I'm not saying that when the bedroom door closes with Shawn Michaels and Nitro Girl Fire, uh, that maybe some freaky shit happens because he's a man of the Lord, and we all know what, when you're so buttoned up on the outside, on the exterior, on the interior, you're a freak inside. Okay. That's why I tuck in my shirts very fucking tightly. Don't throw such words around for a man of the cloth, Michael Hickambottom. Anybody else feel like Jake was just defending himself that entire <laughs> time instead of Shawn Michaels? I'm a goddamn Shawn guy, okay? That's that's why that's why me and Scott Dawson don't get along is because he's a Bret Hart guy. I'm a Shawn guy. We're not meant to get along with each other. You guys don't get along because he's stealing your fucking gimmick. Oh, we, we had history before that. This is oh, just, okay. this is, like, this is me, th uh, him doing that is me not being surprised. That's what that <laughs> is. So. 
All right, so Owen takes out the Black Knight after this crazy, like, kind of indie-style-looking four-corner Irish whip spot, uh, ending with a big old missile drop kick from Owen. And after this, it's just a lot of Greg Valentine wrestling like Keith Hart. It's like, come on, man. what? what? It's like a 30-minute match. <laughs> it is. It didn't need to be that long. Well, it, you had to be because Bruce has got to get himself fucking over, guys. Like... <laughs> All right, then we get into some Hart family drama. Owen gives Shawn Michaels what I'm going to call the greatest belly-to-belly suplex of all time, then runs the ropes, colliding with Brett on the apron, knocking Brett off, hitting the guardrail. What the fuck's Brett doing? He's not even paying attention. Yeah, he was way out there. Owen gets knocked off balance enough to get rolled up by HBK for the elimination. So the Hearts go on to win, which brings Owen out to confront Brett for bumping him like a dick. There was some shoving, some screaming, some fighting, and Owen left to booze, and his mother, Helen, crying at ringside, and I wonder if anyone was like, oh shit, we forgot to tell mom this is a work. Oh, I fucking love Helen Hart crying. Like, it's just, she, she had a talent for it, she could hit it on cue, it was just always brilliant, always fantastic. Owen was angry with being in Brett's shadow, and he challenged Brett, who declined with Brett saying that he would never, under any circumstance, wrestle his own brother. Instead, the brothers seemed to patch things up over Christmas or whatever bullshit they do up in Canada. Yeah, around this time, they didn't have too many tag matches together, but one that you really got to search out, there's a Coliseum video match. Florence, South Carolina, January 1st, 1994, Owen and Brett versus the Steiner Brothers. And they go about 24 minutes, which is really, really good. But the highlight here is the post-match brawl, which is one of the weirdest, surprisingly ambitiously booked little segments. The brawl turns into Pat Patterson comes out, Rene Goulet, Tony Gurria, Bill Alfonso. And it's so much fucking fun. I was marking out last night when I finally watched this match. It's definitely worth searching out. I think it's on Daily Motion. It's not on YouTube. But another weird thing that I never knew happened five days before the upcoming Royal Rumble, Owen Hart would actually win a house show Royal Rumble and Madison Square Garden. He comes in at number 20. If you want to watch the first video, you get to see Scott Steiner almost kill Kevin Nash. But yeah, Owen Hart wins a damn house show Royal Rumble. Brett's cheering him on. They celebrate. It's a really cool thing that I never knew existed. Did you say... Pat Patterson, Tony Gurria, and Bill Alfonso. Uh, yeah, at the end of the Steiner the, match. The fucking dueling accents between those three. How did they communicate yeah. anything? It was like they were a nom and they were communicating <laughs> in the bush. Right, you better go get him. He's going to go all the wild. Oh, but the man, 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 would keep tagging together and eventually get a tag team title shot at 94's Royal Rumble against the Quebecers. And everything was fine until Johnny Polo, whose real name is Raven, pulled down the top rope <laughs> as Brett hit it, causing him to again spill out to the outside and pop his knee on the guardrail. So with limited mobility, Brett isn't able to make a tag, but he tries to put on a sharpshooter. His Ugh. knee gives out and he collapses. So Herb fucking Dean over there stops the match without Brett giving up. Owen snaps, kicks his brother in the knee, and walks off. And on the way back, Owen says that Brett didn't tag him because he's too damn selfish. You're too damn selfish, Brett. 
In the back, Owen cuts a scathing promo on the Titantron as Brett is wheeled back on the stretcher, explaining why he kicked his leg out of his leg. Okay, it, it really watching that because he's crushing the promo, and then he has that line, and the look on his face when he realizes <laughs> that he kind of botched it, like hurt yeah. me. It uh, fucking hurt okay, me. this this is what I'm thinking. I knew there was some sort of fuck up around this. Okay, I knew there was something auspicious about it. Yeah, and then Todd Pettengill, he I forget his follow up question, but then Owen in that moment he still got a lot going. Then he crushes the rest of the promo, botch free, nails it fluidly. But that one little moment really did, did, it hurt me. The two brothers faced off for the first time at WrestleMania 10 in the opening match after Little Richard takes us to motherfucking church on America the Beautiful. It was so goddamn good. R.I.P. Little Richard. Can we point out that we didn't say his name and then he died. I had him in the script, so. <laughs> yeah, as soon as he got put into the script, it was done. He sealed his fate. Tell you what, though, there was something circulating online of Little Richard basically cutting a promo on Chuck Berry. <laughs> oh, nice. Ooh, look that the fuck up. Fucking torch Chuck Berry. It's fucking incredible, and he's got a crown on, too. It's great. <laughs> fucking Little Richard. Um, fantastic. Maybe if you think he's fantastic, don't listen to his Disgraceland episode. You'll see how much of a sexual oh, no. deviant he is. But, of course, Nick is praising uh, Lil Richard, an actual sexual deviant, but then calling <laughs> Shawn Michaels a man of the cloth a sexual deviant. I like the look on Nicholas's face where his eyes roll. He goes, oh, no. This Jake did, Jake did a callback on the, the Shawn Michaels sexual deviant thing and how he stuck up for him. I was just going to cut out Jake's rebuttal like I did the Sable rebuttal, but uh, I guess I got to leave it in there now for context. <laughs> Jake's still stewing. All right, so uh, I want to hear your thoughts on this match because Brent and Owen go out there and put on a fucking show. The thing, like, rewatching it, and maybe I did miss it even on the rewatch, but I don't think there's a single, not even a botch, but like a hiccup. Like, everything is just perfect, crisp. Like, Owen's first nip up out of the head scissors is one of those like, oh shit, that was fucking art. That was gorgeous. The other thing that really gets to me it's not on the WWE Network, but the overhead shots of this match that you see in some versions, it makes it look more beautiful than it is already. And if you can find those angles, those are really worth searching out. And what a lot of people like to do about WrestleMania 10 is because it does go long at one point in time. And they like to point always to Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon in the ladder match for going long. And of course, you know, Shawn Michaels got the thing. Well, if you're going to be that good, you got you got to take that time. But also, let's not forget, Bret Hart also went long with Owen. And do, do you want to cut the ladder match with Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels from WrestleMania 10? Do you want to cut Owen versus Bret Hart and cut their time? I, I think history is for the better of it. I know we missed out on an eight-man tag with Jeff Jarrett. I know history would prefer oh, no. to see that happen. Double uh, J. But I, I think we're all for the better that Owen and Brett went a little bit long just to create this masterpiece. Owen gets a surprise pin, and not only is this a massive upset for the time, it was Owen finally stepping out of Brett's shadow. But it was short-lived, as later, Brett won the WWF World Heavyweight Championship while Owen stood by and watched jealously as Brett celebrated in the ring. The only thing that I, I guess after their opening match, Owen immediately runs off, then he cuts a promo with Todd Pettengill. 
Jake, do you have any idea why they wouldn't have had like him and Owen have a face to face? Then they wanted to save it for the main event. But I mean, still that moment after Owen finally beats Brett, then he just runs off. I felt was kind of a missed opportunity. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. No, because you want you want to show the drama of Bret Hart because you just lost to Owen. And then you got this title match later on against a guy who you just lost to a year ago. You know, you know Owen's got to disappear. He's got to get that win, get out, and then leave Bret Hart stewing in that moment. Because you see that, you, you want that pain. You want to take that baby face. You got to give him the sympathy. Because we're more concerned with Bret's emotions. We don't care about Owen's emotions. At least not yet. Not until... We see Owen come back later in the night and be like, you, because the thing is, it bookends it. You see Bret Hart's disappointment, and that's what we got to hang on here is Bret's disappointment. And then we end with Owen's disappointment. So there's there's all of this, this through line here. And that is the beauty of WrestleMania 10. This is a wonderful, beautiful story that's told through visuals. After Mania, Owen and Brett would go on a long house show feud for the heavyweight title. Owen would continue his big push of 94, entering King of the Ring, first taking on Tatanka, catching him with a surprise pin, and then moving on to the next round to face 1-2-3-Kid, or Sean as I call him, whatever. So 1-2-3-Kid had taken a beating in the first round against Jeff Jarrett, so Owen puts the pressure on him from the jump, catching him with a baseball slide drop kick and a flying crossbody before Kit could even step into the ring. And this match is less than five minutes, but man, they go balls fucking out the entire time before Owen puts X-Pac away with a sharpshooter, moving on to the final. Yeah, it's three and a half minutes, and I think it counted they hit like, I don't know, 12 or 13 spots in there, and they're all good and high impact and are high flying. And Nick mentioned that baseball slide at the beginning. Go back and watch that. I am shocked that Sean Waltman didn't get knocked the fuck out. It, it, it is so out of the blue in the impact, the way he, he shoots out of the screen. It looks like a legit concussion. Then in the finals, Owen would take on Razor Ramon, who had to go through Bam Bam and IRS. Razor and Owen are two of the great workers of all time. And this is kind of a sloppy match. It, it is the yeah. finals. The Anvil runs out and clocks Razor while he was selling on the floor. Owen then gives him a top rope elbow drop, pins him, and Owen Hart is 1994's King of the Ring and would proclaim himself the King of Hearts. Owen and Brett would keep feuding on the build to SummerSlam 94, even mixing in some house shows with some Iron Man matches. Dude, there's one. I didn't get to watch it yet, but uh, the 7994, there's a fan cam that's one of their marathon matches. I got it downloaded. I think it's, I, yeah, it's on YouTube. But go find that. You can see Owen and Brett go at it for 60 minutes. Obviously, no commentary and not the best quality, but it's out there, man. Around this time, there's also another Coliseum video exclusive where Owen is actually the WWF champ for about 31 seconds. There's a lumberjack match that Anvil interferes in. He clubs Brett from behind. Owen gets the pin, and he even gets the Finkel announcement. Owen's the winner, and new WWF world. As other refs come up to Finkel, and then everyone, Brett, Owen, the refs, and all the Lumberjacks, watch the replay of Anvil cheating, and then sadly the match is restarted, and Brett pins Owen. But for that short 29, 30 seconds, Owen was champ. 
1994 SummerSlam match in a still cage. Great wrestling, great selling, great bumping, great drama. What do you guys think? Every good feud should end with a cage. That's that's how it goes, and that's what this is. And I think it's fantastic and it's great. Um, obviously, pure wrestling wise, the WrestleMania 10 match is is better. But at the same time, too, when you're in a cage match, you have to tell the story that you're in a cage. If they did the WrestleMania 10 match in the cage, then it'd just be dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically, something that I was always taught is that you got to tell the story you got to convey the gimmick of the match in a tag match you're trying to get to that tag you're trying to tag your partner and a bunkhouse match you're telling the story or whatever the fucking rules are on that um ladder match the whole story of the match should be trying to go for what's hanging from the ladder um even though we delineate to the cool spots that you make gifts out of and then obviously in a cage match wwf rules of the escape rules through the door over the top those are that or normally cage matches are about like we got to lock these guys inside and they got to beat the crap out of each other. I mean, 94. Yeah, that's the problem I had with it. Yeah, but see, 94 WF, you're not going to get right. you're you're not you're not right. getting Tully and Magnum from Starcade in WWF 1994 mid steroid trial. Like that's you're not right. you're not getting it. It's not happening under any circumstances or rules of the universe. Not at all. That's why I think I'm a little let down. I never really liked the escape shit. And then with them, it was so heated and emotional for them to be running away and trying to escape rather than to beat the other person, I think is what doesn't hit his heart. They did the superplex off the top. That was super cool, um, especially for 94. Uh, the sharpshooter reversal, I thought was very beautiful and, and poetic yeah. and, you know, and then the ending spot where Owen gets tangled up in the cage, hung upside down while Brett dives off. Uh, that was pretty good. Yeah, if you're gonna do the cage, if you're gonna do the cage escape thing, getting tangled up like that, it's it's perfect. And also too, it still technically keeps Owen strong in a sense that like, oh, just because of bad luck, yeah. I got fucked over. Following SummerSlam, they go on the Heart Attack Tour '94. But with SummerSlam more or less being the blow-off to the feud, Owen would start working a bunch of matches with Razor over the IC title leading to a match between their teams at Survivor Series 94. Owen and Anvil would join Jeff Jarrett and Shawn Michaels and Team Captain Diesel to take on 1-2-3-Kid, Razor, Sione, a.k.a. Barbarian, Fatu, and British Bulldog. And we get some fun exchanges between Owen and Davey, which is some good foreshadowing for their matches later. Diesel gets tagged in and mows down pretty much everyone with jackknives. He then big boots Bulldog out of the ring and Owen and Jarrett attack him, getting him counted out, leaving Razor to go five on one. However, Diesel and HBK get into a argument as they can't control their egos, Jake. After uh, Sean accidentally super kicks Diesel, everyone tries to calm down their beef, but everyone kind of scuffles to the back and the entire team gets counted out. Uh, I don't want to be that guy, but shouldn't they have to all get counted out individually. Like why would the, an entire team who aren't the legal men get I don't know. This is a survivor series screw job. No one's talking about. Thank you, Nick, for pointing out the bullshit that is propagated against <laughs> us. Uh, but Owen wasn't done for the night later. Brett took on Bob Backlund for the WWF title. And Owen came out to interfere, letting Bob sink in the cross face chicken wing while Brett was distracted. And he had it in for like literally like 10 minutes. 
until Owen convinced Helen to throw in the towel. Man, if you want to watch this, the one non-Owen match, but Owen, this is some of his best stuff where he's starting out as the chicken shit asshole heel, but then he slowly realizes that he made a mistake and he's motioned to Stu and Helen to save Brett and he's like, I'm sorry, Brett, I'm sorry. And he's actually fucking crying and welling up. It's, it's Owen showing off how good he was as a performer physically and as an actor that really puts this segment over, that really turns him into that asshole. Owen also prevented Brett from regaining the title at 95's Rumble when he interfered in the Brett and now new champion Diesel match. Brett had Nash in a sharpshooter. Owen flies out for the back, breaks it up, uh, exposes a turnbuckle. Irish whips Brett into it, and Earl Hebner just straight continues the goddamn match. The warning signs were there, Brett. HBK runs in to attack Diesel as does Backlund and Owen a little bit later, and the match ends in a no contest. After this, the Brett-Owen beef more or less got put on hold, so Owen got himself into the tag team title scene, taking on the smoking guns at WrestleMania 11, and Owen was joined by a mystery partner who was none other than the mighty Yokozuna. This is about where I came back into watching wrestling again, or having the ability to watch wrestling again, was in early part of 1995 because I lived and breathed off of whenever WWF was on syndicated television after church or when it'd be on late night. So it was very hard for me to find WWF television until we got direct TV. And this is right where we came in. And I remember Yoko being a big deal kind of when I like wrestling was fading away and then Bret Hart being a big deal, and then all of a sudden, like, finding, like, oh, my gosh, Owen's team with Yoko Zuna was, like, such a big deal for me because, you know, Yoko was this big monster, and now he's with Owen, and Yoko's history with Bret from the last time that I remember watching wrestling. It was, like, it was like such a, a shock for me as a wrestling fan, uh, as somebody who just, like, had the little bit of information that I had from the last time that I saw it. You see those matches with Yoko and Owen. I mean, Yoko's fighting his his weight issues at this time, and he's still he's still pretty good. He's still getting his stuff in. But Owen just being the bump machine that he is, whenever he needs to run spots, he's there. When the finish needs to happen, he's there. Just all the Yoko Owen stuff. It's just a credit to to Owen Hart. Almost kind of like telling Yoko, like, "Hey, man, like, I know you're dealing with some stuff. Just you know, keep keep with your diet. I know you your body's also hurting too. So let me do some of this work. It just shows how cool Owen is. It's like, I got this. Don't worry, I'll take care of you. You can keep your job. You can be in the limelight. We're we're good. That's always one of my favorite tag team dynamics. Like big monster with like little high flyer guy who's bumping around like I, yeah. I love that combination so owen and yoko beat the smoking guns after yoko hits billy with a belly to belly and bonsai but then tags owen in to just pin him it's kind of weird yeah. after the victory owen would join jim Cornette and mr fuji as part of camp Cornette. They defend the belts on Raw against Bob Holly and 123 Kid, the head shrinkers on Superstars, before running them in to Kevin Nash and Shawn Michaels at In Your House 3. I remember ordering this, and I was super excited at the possibility of Diesel and Shawn Michaels having the tag team belts. That <laughs> visual of them having all the belts. like like People can talk shit all you want about the click, 
that as a young man is exactly what I wanted to see. <laughs> but then at the same time, too, the, the, the like kind of the, the marquee side of me was like, ooh, what if Owen gets the WWF title? Yeah. Like, I knew that would never happen, but I was just like, ooh, the possibility of that. Like, that that's, I mean, I bought all the in your houses mostly because they were. Fourteen ninety five. They were cheaper. Uh, I mean, I could I could do like two hours worth of chores, and then I get right, every yeah. in your house every month. So it was with those big pay per views. I had to work a couple extra, couple extra hours, and clean my room and do all those things to get done what I needed to get done. So this was a match where if WWF champ got pinned, lost his belt. Intercontinental champ Shawn Michaels got pinned, lost his belt, and if either of the tag team champions got pinned, they'd lose their belts. And this is a match we talked about on Yokozuna where Davey fills in for Owen because Owen had an emergency back home, but Swerve Bro, he was really there. Uh, Owen runs out, gets himself pinned by Diesel, and they lose their tag team titles. But the next night on Raw on September 25th, it was announced that while Diesel and Michaels did win the match, they didn't win the titles because Owen wasn't the legal man. So they gave the belts back to Owen and Yoko, who immediately lose the belts back to the smoking guns. From there, Owen and Yoko would tag with Owen breaking off here and there for singles matches and the rest of 1995 kind of being uneventful for the Rocket. Rolling into 96, Owen would start tag teaming with Davey Boy as Bulldog had turned hill and joined Camp Cornette's stable. Around this time, he really he had a short little feud with Shawn Michaels is really worth finding. He has a whole deal where he insegurries the living shit out of Shawn, who collapses almost. It's portrayed like a shoot. And this is when Shawn coughed up the IC belt. And then they're in your house six match. Really go out of your way to find really damn good. Kevin Steen even picked it for some WWE match highlight thing. And this was one of the weirdest trivia bits I've found in a while. 11 95 Owen Hart defeated Matt Hardy in a singles match for a WWF Superstars taping. And then later that night, Owen defeated Jeff Hardy in a singles match on Raw. Probably only man to ever do that shit, but really look up the Shawn Michaels stuff. Owen would kick off WrestleMania 12, tagging with Bulldog and Vader to be Ahmed Johnson, Jake the Snake, and Camp Cornette deserter Yokozuna getting the win. Then the Slammy Award-winning Owen Hart would have a long house show run with Savio Vega, who he would beat at SummerSlam 96. Nick, two-time Slammy Award winner, please. In September 96, Owen would again take the tag titles off the smoking guns, this time with Davey at In Your House 10 Mind Games. They'd hold on to the tag titles for the rest of 96 and into 97, and Owen would be all over the belt scene in 97. Still as tag team champions, Davey and Owen would make it to the finals of a European title tournament in Berlin, Germany on Raw that aired March 3rd, 97 that happened February 26th. This match is so fucking good. In my opinion, the Bulldog-Owen matches are better than the Brett-Owen matches. Both are great, but I think Owen and Bulldog's styles mesh together better. Well, also, too, I, I think... <laughs> Like Owen could instigate some of the best out of Davy or instigate some of the uh, lightheartedness out of Davy a little bit. Like, and this is hard to explain because Brett obviously could pull the best out of Davy Boy and did multiple times, especially in this era, especially at the Wembley Stadium thing. He knew what Davy's strengths and weaknesses were because that's what Bret Hart is. He's a master at that. But Owen had this ability, I feel like 
to make Davy do some of the dumbest and weirdest stuff just to like go try this because I clearly remember this time when they're tagging like Davy had kind of become more of a like a body guy type more concerned with press slams maybe not so much uh, as much as he was when he was feuding with the warlord but he's still like when he got to the point that he was doing that, like when he was like feuding with Vader and WCW and, and, and during that era of Davey, like Davey was always like a big muscle bound guy. Or when he was with the Bulldogs, he would just kind of, he would be doing cartwheels and front flips and landing on his feet and then springboards and all kinds of things. But he got away from that. And now, you know, obviously like he had that big body guy run and then now he's kind of leaned out a little bit more in this area and he's tagging with Owen and all of a sudden, like you start seeing some of that older stuff. And I got to feel like it's like almost kind of like Owen, like, Hey, you should do this. Cause they do like a spot where I think it's like a, a knuckle lock. And then like Owen would like hop to the top rope and then fling back and reverse it. Well, Davy boy did that. Like <laughs> while they were teaming with Owen. So I almost feel like it was a situation of Owen going, Hey, I can do this. Remember when you used to do this Davy and just like instigate him to do shit like that. I, I would love to, to know if that was their dynamic because I, I saw Davey definitely try some of that stuff a lot more than he used to because he would fall into that thing. Oh, I'm a body guy and I'm big and I'm strong. But all of a sudden he would kind of float back to some of that more proto British Bulldog stuff back in his old tag days with the dynamite kid. Yeah. That's watching the Berlin match. I had so many moments of, Oh yeah. British Bulldog could fucking go. You kind of, you kind of forget yeah, for after real. his runs you know, of just being a big dude, you know. Just him wrestling Warlord. Like, you see that match, you're like, yeah, he, he doesn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, he hits those front flips, and he does them, like, you know, like he's flicking his wrist, and you're like, yeah. oh, shit. Bulldog gets the win with a sneaky pin and becomes the first WWF European champion. The tension over the European belt would roll over to March 24th, 97's Raw, with Owen and Davey getting into a shoving match during a match with the Headbanger. A very angry Owen demanded a title shot at Bulldog's European belt the next week, and the match was booked for March 31st, and they went to fucking war again. It is also very good. There's a big old ref bump, and Owen grabs a chair. Remember, they're tag team partners. Uh, Davey takes the chair from Owen, but he gets tackled from behind from Bret Hart, who had ran into the ring pinning Davy down by his neck with the chair. The three start arguing and shoving until Brett grabs a mic. Brett says, America is a country that has based its entire history on brother against brother. And I was like, wow, that is the most profound thing anyone has ever said in a wrestling promo. I thought you were going to have something about doppelganger Hulk Hogan fighting (laughs) each other or something. (laughs) So Brett talks Davy and Owen off the cliff. Owen cries so hard. It's yeah. so good. Uh, they hug, and then Lawler's crying after. It's fucking hilarious. They agree to put their differences aside and join Bret Hart to form the Hart Foundation, an anti-American stable, including the three with Jim Neidhart, Brian Pillman, basically a stampede wrestling all-star team. And uh, yeah. Owen was off on what I call the second biggest angle of his career. I don't know if Jake could do this because he's been doing the last dance real hard, but can you do a Chicago Bulls entrance for every person (laughs) on the Hart Foundation? I'll get too emotional. (laughs) I can't tell you every time I hear that Chicago Bulls entrance, that moves me in such a way (laughs) 
that takes me back to a. That's why I'm so happy because I'm I've been hearing that every <laughs> Sunday for for at least oh, two boy. hours. And just just that whole like bring it up. And now yeah. you're Chicago Bulls like that. I know people in my area that have announced their wedding party at the reception. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like that. Oh, nice. <laughs> and, and that was a steady thing for years. If you you weren't you didn't have your salt in eastern Iowa as a DJ if you didn't give <laughs> the oh, wedding yeah. party. The Chicago Bulls entrance. So, but yeah, like each one of those guys would have deserved it. My mind would have melted. But like I said before, this is very similar to the Memphis Jerry Lawler USWA. Uh, we're, over here, we're good, but over here, we're yeah. bad. Some of that kind of bleeds over into that. I mean, maybe you could say that that kind of inspired it. But at the same time, too, I think this kind of happened as accident and we're going to lean into it. So, yeah, maybe you could make that argument. I haven't heard anybody say like, well, I haven't heard like a fucking... Wade Keller, Dave Meltzer, or Micah Joseph Loving. Uh, fucking, I get three names, they get two. Fuck yeah. Uh, go on about it. Like, well, you know, the Memphis USWA Lawler Bret Hart feud inspired the whole US Canada thing. I haven't heard anybody made that theory, but I, I, That's I could a good see one. I'm going to I'm, I'm sure somebody could make that, that argument in a sense that I'm a baby face over here, but I'm a heel over here. It's derivative of everything but uh yeah it's it's very similar to that uh micah wait keller and dave meltzer patriarchy all-star team (laughs) and now the starting lineup for your patriarchy all right between bashing america owen would face the rock for the intercontinental championship april 28th on raw the rock comes out to fucking no reaction here and it is it is fucking nuts to see Dwayne Johnson walk out to nothing it it was really weird to see i it's the difference between Rocky Maivia and yeah. the rock owen rolls that some bitch up pins him and takes the intercontinental championship from his candy ass and the heart foundation kind of hits mid carter bingo here with the tag titles the european title and the intercontinental title they are Lance Storm and WCW. It was not all success for Owen, though. Him and the Bulldog would lose their tag team titles to Stone Cold and Shawn Michaels on May 26, 97. And this is Shawn coming back after being out for four months. And holy shit, looks like he never took a day off. Chaotic ending where Shawn catches Davey with Sweet Chin music. Stone Cold gets the pin. After the match, the Hart Foundation jumps Shawn, leaving Brett uh, so Austin goes after him until he's chased away by a single punch from Owen. All this would build up to In Your House 16, Canadian Stampede. Canadian Stampede is considered one of the best WWE pay-per-views of all time just because of the crowd, the atmosphere, um, that Calgary crowd loves, loves their Stampede boys. Like, that's just, like, you could almost equate it to, you know, Ric Flair and Charlotte. That's how they feel about Bret Hart, the Bulldog, and Owen, just because that Hart name is so synonymous. And also, too, they didn't fuck over every waitress in the city like Ric Flair has for the decades. <laughs> so there's not that bitterness that way. But Calgary loves their Hart family. And the fact that they're there. And they're fighting those dirty Americans that think they're so much better than everybody in Calgary. 
even though they're not saying that they're not portraying that on TV. They just, that's what Brett's telling them in interviews that it just, it's incredible to see. I mean, just let me just explain to you how over the hearts are in Calgary. It's been said over and over and over again. People have their own stories, but I have my own personal story. When we, we, as in me and Michael Bikikio, the owner of highspots.com flew into Calgary to do interviews for the dynamite kid documentary. We had to go through customs and we were kind of, and it was late night. I think we like, we landed at like 10 30, 11 o'clock. We're dealing with customs. It's taken longer than it should. You know, they're asking all these questions. And then finally they asked a question they should have asked right away. What, what are you here for? What are you doing? And we're like, well, we're, we're a documentary crew. We're filming a documentary. And they're like, what documentary? I'm like, well, we're filming one of the Dynamite Kid. We're interviewing uh, some members of the Hart family. And somebody goes, oh, you're going to talk to Ooh. Keith? Like, <laughs> Keith's in my drama troupe uh, for the community theater. <laughs> like, it goes, oh, well, go on right through. Go on right through. Like, Take all just, your cocaine that you have in your bag. We just through. dropped the Hart's name at customs at the Calgary airport. And we got right through. Like they were giving us such a hard time to the second we, we said that we we're going to see the hearts. They're like, stop everything. Let these people through. We don't want word. Get back to the heart family. They gave anybody a hard time. Who knows them? That is that's, a good smuggler strategy tactic that people can use in the future. And that's why I'm saying it here in the pod. <laughs> that's what I'm giving away for free. So the, but that's how much love that city, that town. And the fact that they're getting a pay-per-view is just exemplified and they're and fighting for them. And this is like the very peak of the U.S. versus Canada feud. So it's just this wonderful and beautiful moment. And then at the end, where all the Hart families in there trying to get themselves over. There's a beautiful shot, and I still think about it, like Owen holding up one of his kids, and they're waving the Canadian flag. It's just such a – it's the moment I always think of when I think of Owen Hart, is him holding one of his kids in the ring with – well, his entire family it's just remarkable it's beautiful it's it's great and they do all kinds of crazy shit with stone cold steve austin like arrest him and he's flipping everybody oh, off so it's just it's just so much attitude so much fun it's remarkable the heart foundation would get the win over ken shamrock gold dust lod with owen penning stone cold steve austin starting a feud between yeah. the two of them and that is where we will pick up on owen hart part two so uh, thank you guys for listening to the first part of this. Thanks to everyone donating to our Patreon. You guys got anything? Yes, thank you guys so much. We're trying to put as much up there as possible. I'm even mentioning stuff on how did this get booked and uh, like, hey, this is a really cool match that I did. I'll probably put it up on the Ten Bell Pod <laughs> Patreon because one Patreon's enough. And you know, if you want some interesting stuff from my career that I brought up on a different podcast, I have uh, go ahead and subscribe to our Ten Bell Pod Patreon. A good one-stop place to find all our social media. Uh, personally, Tim Bell Podwise, TimBellPod.com. You can also hear the episodes on there. Find your favorite podcast listening application over at uh, Anchor.fm slash TimBellPod. And we will be back for the not-as-fun part <laughs> two episode of Owen Hart. Hey there, folks. It's the Man Scout, Jake Manning. I'm here to let you guys know uh, I'm super happy right now, and I don't know why. Uh, maybe it's false bravado. Maybe it's because like I am so deep into the Bulls documentary that that makes me happy because it reminds me of my childhood, so I'm having flashbacks to a time when I actually wasn't happy and not as grumpy, which... 
when I was grumpy, as we all know, I make some of the best podcasts with some of the best podcast partners in all of podcasting land. And we are also in Patreon land, guys. That's right. And that's where we get buck wild about everything. I'm hold. See, as crazy you think I am on the actual 10 bell pod episodes i'm even crazier on all the patreon episodes so make sure if you want to see me come unravel at the ends with now a smile on my face make sure you donate to 10 bell pods patreon page